Uh, my name is Benji. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, it's good to, to be with you guys. If you have a Bible, will you open it up? Just put it on your lap. Just turn to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be hanging out in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a teaching that Jesus gave, his longest teaching that he gave. Um, and we're going to continue a conversation we've been having the last few weeks. And as you turn there, um, I needed to just draw your attention to a really significant moment that happened on TV this weekend. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about? NBA Finals are on. So we, um, we, we celebrate that as a church that... Right now is the prime basketball season, and right now there's a game going on, so thank you, everyone who's suffering, being here for Jesus. Uh, if you check your phone, I won't judge you. Just let me know what happens. Um, but I love, I love basketball. I grew up playing basketball, as you can tell, and, uh, and I just was, like, obsessed with it. My dad's 6'4". I always thought I was going to be this really tall uh, person, and that didn't happen. Um, but I grew up playing basketball and, and uh, didn't make it too too far. My dreams got shattered pretty early on freshman year where I didn't make the team. But anyways, not about that. Uh, but every year, uh, my, bas- my basketball team were the Phoenix Suns, which is awful. You can pray for me. Uh, it's, it's the cross I bear. Uh, but uh, I love the Phoenix Suns, but every year during the playoffs, it's like I can put them on the shelf for a little bit and like vote for teams that win. And um, so I, I love the, the playoffs. And, uh, so, and, and every year when the playoffs go on, inevitably, it makes me want to play basketball. So uh, I have a two-year-old son, and he loves basketball as well. Kid you not, he literally cries in the middle of the night to watch Sports Center with me. It's like such a gift from the Lord. And so we, we do that. You know, he doesn't want to watch like Thomas the Train or Daniel Tiger. It's like basketball. I'm like, okay, son. And, um, and so but we'll go and like play like the park near our house. We'll go and take a basketball, and we're like, I'm loving it. He can like throw it up just high enough for it to land back on his face and cause damage. So uh, it's pretty violent for him, but for me, I love it. And it's all going, I'll shoot. And, and, and I don't know about you if you've ever played basketball, I get so frustrated because I'm like, I don't make very many shots, but I feel like I should. I'm like, I know how to shoot, right? I see the, the hoop, I can, I can envision the ball going in every single time. And and I just realized pretty quickly that I'm awful at basketball. Um, and the reality is, the difference between me and Steph Curry, right, besides a, a few inches and in talent, is the fact that um, basketball isn't my life. I don't practice it other than a few days a year. I don't engage in it like him shooting a thousand shots a day. I mean, there's just such a world of difference more than just, than just the, the physical ability, it is the, the time put into that. And the reason I bring up that analogy is because so oftentimes I think that that has a lot to do with our spirituality. Like we hear a sermon or read a book or hear a podcast and we get like pumped. We're like, this is it. Like, I'm excited. I'm going to start hitting those free throws. I'm going to start shooting better. But the reality is we've built our relationship with Jesus on inspiration and on moments rather than on practice. And that is detrimental that if we really truly want to practice the way of Jesus, that our lives look very different. I want to read you this quote that changed my life. I heard it a a year ago from a pastor up in Portland. And it says this, you cannot expect 
the life of Jesus unless you practice the lifestyle of Jesus. I'm just going to read that again, right? You cannot expect the life of Jesus, right, that abundant life that he promises you, that we crave and want, the, the influence, the peace, the rhythm of what Jesus did without practicing the lifestyle of Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus had a lifestyle. He had things that he practiced and things that he desired his disciples to practice. As a matter of fact, that's what disciples means. It means you're an apprentice. You practice what Jesus did. But we've turned Christianity into a spectator sport. We've turned it into something you go and learn about. Right? It's like someone going and learning about plumbing through books and maybe even a couple TV shows and a plumbing podcast. But you never actually have a wrench. You never work with pipes. You never actually learn the trade. And so the Sermon on the Mount is moving into this place now where Jesus is no longer talking about ideas and he's starting to talk about practice. These are things that I assume you as a follower of me, as an apprentice of me, will do in your life. And so Jesus talks about three things here in chapter six. He talks about giving uh, he talks about prayer, and he talks about fasting. And, and we know he's assuming these things because he uses the words when. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. Now, these are things that would be assumed of a Jewish person of that day because Jesus, if you didn't know that, was Jewish. He practiced Judaism. But he also believed that Judaism was pointing to himself as the promised one, as the Messiah, and as he's doing these things, he also assumes that his apprentices, his followers, are going to do the same things. So he says, when you give, there is a sense that it's actually kind of a disruption to our own worldview because it's more like if you give, if you pray, if you fast. But for Jesus, these are non-negotiables. Now, I want to just pause right here because if you're like, oh my gosh, I came to church the night he's talking about giving. Uh, yes, I'm so sorry. Uh, and I, I'm actually really not sorry. I don't apologize for that. But I also want to be sensitive and just say right here, right now, I, I understand that whenever you talk about money and the church, it brings up what Peter Scazzera calls an emotional allergy for a lot of people, including myself. Like we've seen giving, tithes, offering, building campaigns, all sorts of things done in such a way that just leaves this like taste in your mouth like, ah, I don't want to hear one more. I get it. But let's, let me just propose something to you. I've never read this passage the way that it's been revealed to me this week just through studying people who are smarter than me. It's challenged me, yes, but it's left me feeling more in love with Jesus and less guilty. So if you're okay with it, I'm just gonna invite you to go on a journey, to take off your emotional allergies, your presuppositions. I'm just gonna say right up here, I'm not here to give you money. We already talked about giving. There's no basket being passed after this. Uh, but let's, can we just put all our cards on the table and just say, okay, let's just have an honest conversation with what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. What is he talking about? What is he trying for us to get? And beyond you as an individual, my hope is what does he intend for light church? What would happen if his church practiced these things? 
um, because we have a responsibility as well. And I have some really amazing statistics to show you guys at the end with what this little church in five months has already done. But let's, uh, let's, dive, into, let's dive into the text. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. When your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So, um, so here we have this um, this opening line where he starts talking about these practices you do as Jews, keep doing them, but would you change your heart posture? Would you change your thinking when it, so it can look like this? And so he starts diving these things. So we're going to talk about three things tonight, and, and I, I actually last minute kind of changed my notes around, but three things we're going to try and get out through this passage. Number one is what is Jesus assuming when he says, when you give? What would have come to their mind? So when you give is number one. Number two, we're going to talk about how, how not to give. There are ways you can give uh, wrongly and poorly. There's ways you can give that are detrimental to your faith. And Jesus is pretty clear on not doing things a certain way. Um, so much so that I would say if you cannot give with a proper heart, uh, you shouldn't be giving. Jesus is that much after your heart. And then the third thing we're going to talk about is um, why we give. What is, why, what is the why behind Jesus would talk about giving? And so let's go through that first one. When we give, what is Jesus assuming when he says, when you give, you being plural, so he's talking to his followers, which is now the church, right? So when the church gives, what does that look like? Now, uh, Jesus is probably assuming three layers of giving here, these, these different principles going on. The first and foremost is in this passage, Jesus specifically is talking about what's better translated as alms or almsgiving. He's not specifically talking about tithes or offerings, and although those things may be implied, and he definitely talks about them later, uh, right here, there seems to be a specific focus on almsgiving, which would have been your giving above and beyond the tithe to the poor. So in that day, there was no welfare system that Rome set up, right? There were no food stamps. There was no, uh, there was no kind of anything for those who had medical issues, those who had no family, orphans, widows. So what would happen is people would beg at the gates of synagogues or cities, hoping that people would do that. Well, in that day, and if you can use your imaginations here, they judged their social status based on their religious activity. Now, this is a hard thing to imagine because we don't live in a religious culture. We don't even live in a Christian culture. We live in a post-Christian culture. We live in a very secular culture. And so we don't walk around judging people based on like, man, that person's holy, right? We're like, wow, look at that Tesla. Like, man, what a great outfit. Amazing job. Great girlfriend. Great boyfriend. What awesome kids. What a great 401k. I mean, we have, we have a very much a material-based status on how we judge 
where we're at within culture. Well, in the Jewish world, in ancient Palestine at that time, at the turn of the century, the turn of the millennium, there was this, really this understanding that you were who you were based on how holy you appeared. All right, this is why Matt Chandler defines the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus moving us from our outward conformity to our internal transformation. Because outward conformity was everything. So what would happen is their almsgiving would just show up and you would try and get as much attention as you could to try and, and do that. Well, beyond just the almsgiving, there's also this very entrenched idea of tithing um, your first fruits. And so I just want to read you an Old Testament scripture that would have been their worldview of what this looked like. And it says in Deuteronomy 12, Verse 5 and 6 says, But you are to seek the place of the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give, and your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. So there's two principles here that we see even before Moses showed up on the scene to give them the law. There's a a principle of uh, first fruits, which means that in an agricultural and in a farming culture, what would happen is God says, hey, don't take a look at the crop you just harvested and see what's left. I want your first harvest. Because in agriculture, you have multiple harvests. He says, I want your first. For those who are farming, and there's an animal, they're about to give birth to their first uh, lamb or goat or cow. God's like, I want the first one. Now, what I love about this principle is God is not seeking after an amount. He's seeking after trust. Because as a farmer or as, as, as someone who raises livestock, that's everything. What happens if there's not a second harvest? What happens if there's not a second lamb? Or I mean, it demands your trust in the Lord, and that's always what God is after is your heart. All right, this is what Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's why he says, I want your first treasure. And, but there's also this principle that they held so dear, this idea of tithe. And tithe just means tenth, right? So there's another part in Luke's gospel where Jesus says, you tithe on everything, even your mint and your, your herbs in your cupboard you're tithing on, Right? So their problem was not if they give, their problem was when they give. They're like experts at giving. Now, we're not there yet. And so our first step, I think, understanding as a church is what would it look like for us to take in a posture of when we give? What would happen not to this church? What would happen to our city? What would happen to the world around us? And I think according to Jesus, what would happen in you? Is if we chose to, to participate in that. We're moving on to our second point. That, again, so we had to kind of get there. That's what, so when Jesus' disciples here, when you give, immediately they think of the, the tithe, the first fruits, but specifically in this moment, they're thinking of the above and beyond, the almsgiving to those poor people. He starts giving them instructions on what not to do. And this is huge. So the, one of the things that he begins to start instructing them on is, you should not be doing this. You should not be giving to get praises from men. And what he says is, if people see you and applaud you and say, well done, says, that's your reward. Does it feel good? Yeah, but that's all you're going to get. That's all that's coming to you. 
And he begins to give this illustration, which is really interesting. He says, don't do it like the hypocrites, which is a really fascinating word. See, the word hypocrites is a very negative term in our culture. In that day, it was just meant actor. But actor is not a negative term in our culture. It's like, don't be like the actors. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And he kind of coined the term for religious purposes by saying these people are acting Like, yeah, they're giving, but they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're not doing it to try and be like their father. They're doing it to try and get praise. They're they're trying to get applause, just like the actors do in in the Greek arenas that were being built. And it's interesting because a lot of people believe that Jesus would have had firsthand experience on this. Because in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, just a couple miles away, there was a Greek arena that was being built the same time Jesus was growing up. Now, Jesus' trade is most popularly known as he was a carpenter. Well, that's not actually the Greek word for his vocation. He was a tecton, which means you're a craftsman. And because there is no forest within 100 miles of Galilee, he probably wasn't a carpenter. He could have been. But most likely, he was probably a stonemason. He worked with, with, with rock and stone to build up um, maybe even this arena that would have been in his neighborhood. So let's just imagine, and I'm reading into the text, I know, but let's just imagine Jesus growing up. He's a 13-year-old, 14-year-old boy, and he's working with his dad, Joe. You know, they're the, you know, they're Joe and Son's stonework company, and they're going there. And, and I can imagine as Jesus is placing stone, he's watching the actors perform. And the Greeks were the ones who made up wearing masks as they performed. And sometimes the same actor would play every single role. And he's watching them do that, and he's like, man, that reminds me a lot of the religious elite of my day. They're playing a role to get applause, but it has no bearance on who they really are. And so Jesus kind of draws this imagery to their minds. says, you know the actors down the street? Don't be like them who go in with trumpets and for applause, they're trying to draw attention to themselves. And then Jesus moves in so brilliantly into why we give. Why we give. And before we dive into what Jesus says, Paul's pretty adamant about this as well, like giving with a good heart. He says, don't, don't do this. If you're doing it out of guilt or obligation or getting your arm twisted, in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8, he says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Like, it's good to give, right? Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So Jesus is clearly not trying to get after an amount, but after your heart. He says, when you give, don't do it for the wrong reasons. This is, these are the reasons you should be giving. So first and foremost, Jesus, the entire Sermon on the Mount, is directing our attention to the Old Testament. He's directing our attention to the law and reminding us of God's intent when he gave these principles. 
Oh, I've just cut off. There we go. Why he's giving, he's giving these, why did God give these commands, give these principles in the first place? And so before we can talk about what he's saying right there specifically, we have to recapture the Jewish imagination of his audience. And they're like, oh, that's why Jesus told us to give 10%. It's why he told us to give free will offerings. It's why he told us to leave our grain behind so that the, the immigrant and the refugee could come and collect it. That's why he intended for us to take care of the orphan and the, window, the widow. And so when Jesus talks about giving, there's just two Hebrew words I'm just going to throw out. You can write them down, think about them. But it's the idea of righteousness and justice. Whenever there's talking about giving the Old Testament, it goes back to these two principles. Righteousness does not mean you're good. It means you have right relationship with men and with God. So righteousness means that there are people who are oppressed. There's people who have been victimized. There's people who have never had the opportunities, whether because of a social system or whatever. He says, those people need to have right relationship with you. There's an amazing um, video that the Bible Project did on justice. I would encourage you guys to watch it this week. And this is Hebrew word mishpat, which means that your desire as you give, it is so that humanity is made right again. One of our desires as a church is that the giving that's done at Light Church does not just go to fund uh, programs or operations, but we think as a financial boarding council, we pray about how does this make people right again the way God intended them to live? How can we partner with God in his redemptive act in that, that mishpat, right? How do we participate with him in righteousness? And the second word, it's this Hebrew word tzedakah, and it's this word justice. And it doesn't mean just you get what you deserve. It actually says you give to give people reconciled back into the place that they deserve from God, not from humanity. This is, these are powerful ideas that, that shaped Peter and Matthew and John's imagination. So when he starts talking about giving, they immediately are thinking about mishpat and tzedakah, right? Righteousness and justice. Because in their world, they are slaves, to Rome. The, the, his, the, Israel of, the history of Israel is that they came out of being slaves to Egypt. And God, when God called them out, he says, don't forget that you yourselves did not have justice or righteousness, but I rescued you so you could be a nation and a people that brings about righteousness and justice for those who need it in the world. And Israel, like us, have failed at that. But the intent behind giving from the very beginning was always those ideas to make shalom happen in the world again. And so as they're imagining these things to become a force of justice in our world, it also begins to reveal a, an even deeper sense of why we give. Why we give. And one of my favorite things that I was studying this week is for Jesus, when he talks about giving, prayer, and fasting, he always uses the word father. That for these three practices he's about to go through, he always draws them back to, to dad, right? Your heavenly father. This is what your heavenly father is like. So when you give, when you pray, when you fast, you are actually identifying with your heavenly father. And so as he starts talking about when you give, the very, I think one of the deepest things that he's trying to get at in this moment 
is that he's desiring for saying, listen, your father gives. This is why we give. Yesterday, I had a proud moment as a dad. Um, I was with my brothers and some of their kids, and, um, and this little TV like popped on. It had the DVD symbol. Remember those? And it has like this oval like DVD thing. And my son, two years old, literally goes, surfboard. And I was like, yeah, that's the shape of a surfboard, son. And I kid you not. And, and my brother's looking at me like, whoa, that's crazy that he like sees a, you know, it's like psychologists who show you those like weird ink splots. Like, what do you see? My son sees surfboards. Um, it's your destiny. Uh, and he, I kid you not, he's like, surfboard. And he's like on this cushion, sticks his head in the cushion and starts paddling. <laughs> surfboard, surfboard. And I just like want to tear. I'm like, yeah, that's right, son. And like, I'm just like, man, this is so, and, and my brothers like, are like, man, my kids would never <laughs> have seen that, ever. But the reality is Augustine sees my, my lifestyle and he sees the surfboards in my garage when I take him out to go surfing and he watches me and, he, and he'll take him in the grass and he'll practice. And so surfing's a part of his, his connection to his father. And so that same sense of pride that I had, like look at my son identifying surfing at such a young age. I wonder if that's how our heavenly father sees us when we give. Because that's a part of who he is. You see, if you ever have the lie creep into your head that God is just after my money, then you have failed in understanding who God is at his core. You see, God is not someone trying to get, he's someone who's already given. See, the most famous verse in all the world, for God so loved the world that he gave. There's nothing you could give, no amount, nothing uh, deep or more sentimental than what God gave in his love for you. And as his children, our identity as sons and daughters, when we give, it comes from this place of, I'm going to be like dad. When I give, I want to be someone who gives in such a way that I'm not drawing from the attention of the world, which leads to our last point, the reason why Jesus says we give is because that, that connection with our Heavenly Father comes with a reward. Now, this is pretty profound. It's pretty profound that, that Jesus would show up, and he doesn't say, give because it's right, give because it's good, and give only because God gave. You know what he says is, get because you're going to get a reward. Now, I think every person in this room can identify with that because we love rewards, Right? We love awards and rewards. Like, we want to get paid. That's literally the Greek word that Jesus says. You will get paid. He will pay you in full. Like, if you were just to read it in the Greek, it says, your heavenly Father will pay you in full. And, like, what a profound and provocative thing to put before his disciples He's saying, listen, don't settle for the applause of man. Don't settle for what the world can give when your heavenly father has something that cannot rust, that will not be destroyed, but is so much deeper and is so much more what our heart is craving and longing for. Because I don't know about you, but there's something inside of me that no matter how much I get, I always want more. And, and, and it's true of all of us, isn't it? Like, the, none of us woke up this morning and they're just like, gosh, I have way too much. Way too much money in my bank account. Benji, can we meet? Gosh, 
I'm too rich. It's never happened in like my, you know, 15 years of ministry, except for one time. Can I tell you a story? I had a, I had a young person, he's probably 21, 22, was making pretty decent money for like that age. And he sat down with me distraught, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, what did this guy do? Like, and he said, came to me, he's like, I just need to confess something to you. I'm like, what? And he literally is like, he's like, I've, I'm, I'm afraid, and I use money to give me security. And I feel like God's asking me just to give it all away. And I was like, what? He's like, can you help me figure out how to spend it? How do I give it away? Never in my life have I had someone come to me, specifically at that age, just coming to me and being like, I'm struggling with greed. And I was like, whoa. And you know what we got to do? I had one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. I'm like, what can we do with this money for the kingdom? Well, who's a single mom who needs it? What's an, what's an organization that helps orphans? You know, could we build a water well with this? And so we end up spending thousands and thousands of dollars of this young 20-year-old's money on kingdom stuff. It was like so wild, but I have to tell you, not only was it fun, it was incredibly convicting. Because the reality is, according to the World Bank, Half the world is living on less than $2 a day. Guys, in San Diego standards, I could have a lot of thoughts roll through my head of what I need. But if I just take a moment, just look at my brothers and sisters around the world, I'm filthy rich. And I never think of it. If I look at my time, right? None of us would ever come to me and just be like, Benji, I have too much time on my hands. What do I do? Everyone I talk to in this church is like, I'm so busy. I got this going on. Listen. Yet at the same time, I can do more from my phone than I could from like a whole week's worth of work, even 10 years ago. I have more time available to me than ever before, and yet I still think I need more. Or what about ability, right? I had the, the privilege, I didn't earn it, to grow up in an education system, to go to college and get a degree and to read and to books. When there's parts of the world that you can't even read yet, guys, I've been given so much time, talent, and treasure, and somehow I've had a blind pull or a veil pulled over my eyes to think I, if I could just have a little bit more, I could give. And just imagine God saying, you have everything you need to bring about justice and righteousness in the world. You have everything you need to start identifying with your father as you give. You have everything you need to stop looking for the world to tell you what is good and what a reward looks like and start believing that your heavenly father wants to reward you. Now, it's just one of those sermons this week, guys, that I've just been like challenged. I'm not, for someone who desires to practice the way of Jesus, right, that first quote, practice that lifestyle of Jesus, this is one of those areas that, yes, yes, I give, and yes, I tithe, and yes, we give to different organizations, but guys, I just don't know if, like, the more I fall in love with Jesus, the more I'm just motivated. Not that I need to, but I get to. 
So law versus great, right? The law says you ought to. Grace says you get to. We get to give. How good is God that we get to be able to do that? I just want to share a story with you guys. So Zoe, um, our nine-year-old, when she was about six or seven years old, uh, got it in her mind that she wanted a Barbie Jeep. And um, like we all did as a kid, right? Did anyone else have that desire dream to have like one of those like remote control, like not, or like the Jeeps you get to sit in? You never, did anyone else not get one like me and you're still bitter about it, right? <sighs> Wounds, okay. A special time of prayer afterwards. So my daughter like sits in her mind and so I told her, I'm like, I look online, there's like 250 bucks. I'm like, yeah, right. So I told her what every good father says. I'm like, save your money. So she starts saving a dollar here, five dollars here, things like that. Her birthday comes around. You guys, my daughter, who's not a saver, right? She's a spender and a free spirit, uh, raised, I think, $140. And I'm like, dang, girl, I, wish I could save $140. But burritos are so good. Um, <laughs> but she has $140. She comes home from church and someone at church started sharing about this organization who helps women who are pregnant. And instead of getting an abortion, they want to keep it, but they don't have the means to do it. This organization raises money to get diapers, to provide medical care, counseling, babysitting. A wonderful organization called Alternatives in Escondido. She comes home and she literally says, Dad, I want to give all my money to them. And I'm like, so it's $140. It's taking you months to save you. You, <laughs> you want to give like 10%? <laughs> I'm literally like talking her down. And she's like, I want, she's like, I want to give all of it. I'm like, wow. I'm like, okay. So we took all of her money. Most of it was in change. <laughs> We took it to church and gave it to the ladies' organization. And we went home. I'm like, how do you feel? And she's like, I feel great. She's like, I miss, she's like, I'm sad I don't get a Barbie Jeep, but I'm glad I did this. I'm just like, just bawling. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, I have so much to learn. Well, I share the story at our previous church in San Marcos, and someone after church comes up to me, and she's like, I would like to buy Zoe a Barbie Jeep. I'm like, are you kidding? And she's like, no. She's like, God told me. I don't want her to know who it is. Just like, what's your address? So, so she told her, give her the address. And I, she texts me. She's like, okay, we got the car. Can I deliver? So she gets there. Zoe gets home from school. And like, as a dad, I'm just like, you have no idea what's coming. This is going to be so amazing. She walks through the door and she sees the Barbie Jeep and she just starts shaking. She's like, <gasps> Like, just like, oh my gosh, I kid you not, out of her mouth just comes, only God could do this. And I lost it. Only God could do this. Your heavenly father sees what you do in secret and will reward you. For those of you who've been giving in secret, maybe that's financially, maybe that's with your time, right? I talk with some of you guys who give hours of your week to different nonprofits. I talk to some of you guys who take care of your family members with Alzheimer's. I talk to some of you guys who are going on a missions trip to be with refugees in Syria. I, 
And I see so many of you guys not knowing what your right hand and left hand is doing. You're just doing it. And it's almost like I have this vision of God standing in the living room of heaven just saying, wait till they see what I have for them. Wait till they see the reward I've been crafting for them that will never get rusted out in the rain like her Barbie Jeep did. There's something that God has in store that you can't even imagine. Don't settle for the applause of man when you have the reward of heaven. And God can't wait. Can't wait, and I can't promise you that you're gonna get the Barbie Jeep in this life, right? I can't. Pro- I don't know what that looks like. Jesus doesn't give a lot of definition to it, other than that it's coming from His Father. But what I do know is that when God gives gifts, that they're good and perfect. That's what it says in James. And I don't know about you, but I'm I'm getting pretty tired of things that are flawed and imperfect, and I desire my Father, my Heavenly Father, to craft and provide the reward. Even think about, I was even thinking, I guess last Sunday was Mother's Day. You know, what, what a better picture of someone who gives without the applause of men than moms. All right, when they're changing the diaper at 3 a.m., right, when they're picking them up from school, wiping the snotty nose, and they're helping with homework, and they're cuddling them after a bad dream, and never once do they get a medal or a plaque, maybe a hug, or probably just another poopy diaper. (laughs) I was thinking about that on Mother's Day last week as I was studying for this message, and I'm like, man, I can't wait to see the rewards in heaven. God's just like, I saw, I saw those sleepless nights. I saw that as generous gift. I saw that check you wrote. I saw the time you gave. I saw the passion and the talent you poured into that thing. And I can't wait to reward you. I wanted to show you guys some, some things about our church specifically, about how we want to think about giving and how we want to approach giving as as a new congregation, just so you know as you give here that this isn't perfect. I'm not perfect. We have an amazing team who helps direct our funds to the most kingdom things that we can think possible. So just, just so you know how we as a community want to respond to this is our focus in missional giving will be three things, the unseen, the unreached, and the urgent. So we're going to sp- Focus our finances, our time, our talent, and our treasure into people who are not seen, the invisible, those who've been trafficked, the orphan, those who are trapped within mental health issues. Those are, those are the people we want to believe in and resource and reach. The, the unreached, those who, uh, whether they're in a part of the world that the gospel has not reached yet, whether they're in parts of our city that have yet to hear the gospel, We want to um, resource and fund that. The urgent, when there's hurricanes and natural disasters and earthquakes, we want to not just have funds, we want to have people ready to deploy at a moment's notice when the world needs needs aid. And we as a church are ready to mobilize and move because we can do so much more together. Um, So just so you know, every month we give a pretty significant percentage of what comes in here away and that percentage is going to go up every single month as we grow as a church. Our goal is to give a substantial amount of what comes in outside. And so right now what we're doing is every single month we choose a different one of these organizations 
or focuses to give. So our first month, we gave to Preemptive Love, which you guys heard from Matt and Kayla. They're our friends who go to Light Church. They live in Iraq with their three small children right now. Preemptive Love brings food and medical aid to, um, to the most war-torn, hottest uh, beds in Syria and Iraq. Wherever ISIS is, they'll go and provide medical aid and food. Uh, secondly, we provide the, the GEM Foundation is an orphanage in Uganda that only houses children with special needs. And so we write them a check. So every fourth month, they'll get some support. Our, our goal is to take a team of you guys over to Uganda to see the work they're doing with these kids. It's amazing. Uh, Generate Hope is our focus this month. Generate Hope is the um, is a San Diego-based organization that takes in women who've been human trafficked and been part of a sex slavery, and they provide safety, rehabilitation, healing, prayer, job placement. Uh, they're just opening up their second house, the first in San Diego. Um, some of the people that work for them actually go to Light Church, so we're sponsoring them. And then every fourth month, we'll support a church plant. It's like us just starting out, and church plants, I don't know if you know this, is the most effective way to reach people who don't know Jesus or don't go to church. So we believe it's one of our values is reaching the unreached. So that's just a little bit how it is, but I just want to, can I tell you guys some good news? Let me tell you some good news of what you guys, and partnering with the Lord, have done over the past, uh, past few months. So in five months at Light Church, orphans with special needs have received medical care, a water well in Iraq has been rebuilt that ISIS destroyed. Uh, medical aid for refugees in Syria and Iraq have been given. Other church plants have been supported and sponsored. Women coming out of trafficking have been rescued and cared for. Art supplies are being supplied to children in need. This Tuesday, we're bringing dozens and dozens of the art supplies you guys brought to help children who've been a part of domestic abuse for their art therapy. Um, 48 people have begun relationships with Jesus since January 7th at Light Church. 12 open tables have started. Six people have been baptized with more on the list. Over 100 people are serving in and outside of the church. I don't know about you, but I, I was putting this together this week, and I was just humbled by what happens when a little church, a brand new baby church just says, we want to practice the way of Jesus. We want to give the way that Jesus gives. And what happens when we come together to make that happen? So would you guys just bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to continue to shape us and mold us into a church that looks like the one he desired. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just are so humbled, first and foremost, by the fact that you chose to give to us when we didn't deserve it. Matter of fact, Lord, we squander the gift of your son and the grace you've given almost daily, but you give and you give and you give so, Lord, I pray the next time we see the person on the street that we are skeptical of their responsibility, would we be reminded that as irresponsible children, you gave to us. 
But I pray as a church that you would help us as a community to live generously so that we can see your kingdom come, that how, how heaven is, where righteousness and justice reign, would start taking place on this earth and that this church would be a part of your greater church and making that happen. And Jesus, I ask that you would just continue to just move in our hearts. Lord, for those areas, those passions, those things, Lord God, that you called us to invest our time and our talent and our treasure. Lord, we love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.